word from Isaiah 1, 13 through 17. Bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation, I cannot endure solemn assemblies of, with iniquity. Your new moon and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove your evil deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. So the summer was 2020, and we all remember what was happening right before that. We were in the middle of the pandemic. We were masking from one another. We were afraid to be together in closed spaces because this disease was killing people at a massive rate. And then there was another pandemic that opened itself before our eyes, our eyes that's been around for a lot longer than COVID-19. Because in the early, of summer, early part of summer 2020, George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin outside of Cup Foods in Minneapolis. Derek kneeled on George's neck until he died in cold blood. That summer, I was living 20 miles away. Two of the companions I was living with were also 20 miles away. And the moment that happened, I got a text from the pastor I was working with at the time, and he said, this is it. The floodgates will open. This is the cold blood of racism in our country laid bare for all to see. And at that time, St. Luke Presbyterian Church, the church that I was in, became a 24-hour safe house, distributing food and water and supplies and shelter and safety to the tens of thousands who took to the streets to demand justice so that peace one day might come. So this morning, the theme is, tell our story. What is our story? And the reason I go to this moment is because when this happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis, being so close, I remember feeling it in my body. I remember waking up that morning not knowing what had happened, and I felt ill. I felt in my gut that something weird was going on. And then I turned on the news, and you know why. Because just down the road, a tragedy that had been built up on decades and decades of systemic racism had unfolded. So my question in all of this was not just why does racism happen? Why is there racism in our country? My question went 
to an existential level of why does a good God that we spend a lot of time worshiping and making our lives around allow for bad things like this to happen? For someone to suffer so brutally at the hands of the state. Why? How could this happen if there is a benevolent God? I'm sorry, I don't have an answer. I can't just tell you, fill in the blank. But I can tell you that there is something to the fact that that morning before I'd even turned on the news that my gut had already turned over. Something to say that all of those people that initially felt the call to come out and say George Floyd's name felt something in them turn over. That everybody I knew in my life, no matter their political opinion, said something online about how horrible this was. So maybe there is something to a God that connects us all in our gut. That when one of us hurts, all of us hurt. Maybe that's part of the enduring story. So that when these awful things happen, we don't just stay down. We don't just turn the other way. We don't just let someone else spit on the kid on the bus. Because when they hurt, we hurt too. When they hurt, God hurts too. tell our story let it echo far and wide make them hear you make them hear you how justice was our battle and how justice was denied make them hear you make them hear you and say to those who blame us for the way we chose to fight that sometimes there are battles which are more than black or white and i could not put down my sword when justice was my right make them hear you make them hear you When I went to seminary at Perkins School of Theology in Dallas, Texas, I was so blessed to have this awesome uh, pastor who taught me how to preach. His name was Zan Holmes. He was an African-American pastor, full of energy, just an amazing preacher. And I remember we used to have to give these sermons in our class, and he'd record them. And then we'd go into his office the next day, this Zan Holmes, who was the greatest preacher, and he would watch the video of us preaching and there he was and we'd be there and we'd just have to suffer the pain of being such a green preacher um, but what i loved about his office is behind his desk he had these pictures of all these different kinds of folks behind him uh martin luther king jr some of his family you could tell other folks just 
all these different pictures. And finally I asked him, what are those pictures, Zan? Why all those pictures behind you? And he said, when I write a sermon, I don't write it alone. These folks are my cloud of witnesses. These are my folks behind me. And they help me write this sermon. Some of the words are theirs, but also they're watching me write this sermon. So I, you know, don't get it wrong. I can do it right. And I feel like I'm not alone on that journey. Today I want to tell you a, a couple of stories, as Will has shared a couple, of, of my journey along the battle with racism. And, and I have some good stories and some tough ones. And one of the good stories I have is when I was in Vermilion, South Dakota, there was this retired Navy chaplain, Bob Eason, who uh, was there, about 82 or 83 years old, tall, like 6'4", six, 6'5", very slender, and he had this amazing, soft, genteel southern accent. And we used to let him pray sometimes. Every time I had a tough moment, I'd, I'd give it to Bob, and he'd pray such beautiful prayers. <clears throat> but I got to know who he was. He's got a great story. And he was a, a pastor for many years um, in Kentucky. In the, I, no, actually, it was South Carolina, sorry. In South Carolina. And he tells the story of being in this church in South Carolina when they were just starting to have some of the sit-ins, some of the uh, racial strife that was going on down there, some of that tension. And he said one Sunday morning, he was about ready to preach when the usher of his church came up and said, hey, pastor, we got a heck of a problem here. I don't know what to do. And, and Bob said, what's going on? He said, well, there's a group of like seven black people. And I think they're, some of those young people have been doing some of these sit-ins. Well, they're, they're at the door. And I don't know whether to let them in or where I should see them. What, what should I do? I should just turn them away, I think. And Bob said, well, let me, let me handle it. So he went to the door. And he said, come on in. And he brought them all down right to the front row. <laughs> and he sat them down and uh, welcomed them, said how great it was wonderful to have them in, in, in his presence, in their church's presence. Bob didn't last in that church very long. He was moved three months later. That's how United Methodists get rid of the rubble rousers in this world. They move them, and he was moved. Um, he went to another church. Did he learn his lesson? Absolutely not. Again, racial problems happened and he stuck his neck out and again he was moved in fact he was moved three times in three years and then the conference called him up and said Bob I don't think we can place you in this conference we're not going to let you be a pastor in this conference anymore he had family young family there was Bob without a job he moved to a different conference in Kentucky somebody some bishop took him, and he made his place there in Kentucky. I mean, I love Bob, you know? He, he's just this guy who stuck his neck out for the right reasons. It wasn't easy. The, the crowd didn't go with him. But he stuck it out and helped me every time I remember him and think about his story of just how powerful it is to see somebody live up to the way they really believe.
preacher's kid and I have some amazing gifts because I was a preacher's kid. I learned some things. We moved a lot so I had to learn to adjust to different situations and I can do that. I kind of see myself as a chameleon. I know how to change colors for the right reasons to fit in, right? And that can be a, a wonderful gift. But it can also be a curse because sometimes I give them to the crowd too easily. I remember when I was in East Texas, I was going to seminary, I was a young pastor, student pastor. Um, East Texas was an interesting place to live. Sometimes I wonder if the civil rights movement just passed right over. There were still KKK um, stores in some of the little towns in that area in the late 90s, or early 90s. And uh, I was trying to take that culture in, right? So I had a, a ad council board chair, um, great guy, but he used the N-word quite often in my presence. I didn't know exactly what to think of that. I thought, what is this, just the South? And it isn't just the South, but it was, it was him. And one Saturday night, I was working on my sermon in the church really late, and uh, I did that often back then, the Saturday night special. <laughs> and then I looked outside my window uh, of the church, and there was this blue smoke in an old car that pulled up. And out of that old Ford car came an African-American guy, a black guy. And he came up to the door of the office, and he knocked. He must have saw my light on. And I opened up the door, and... He said, hey, my name's uh, Willie Briscoe. He was really a, a nice guy, but I noticed he looked down at the ground quite a bit, didn't want to really look me in the eye. Um, and finally, as we got to talking, he said, you know, I've really been going through some tough stuff. Uh, what would you think about me coming to church tomorrow? Well, of course I should have said yes, right? But I hesitated. Just moment and in that hesitation I thought about my board chair and what it would be like for Willie Briscoe to come to church with that board chair and I just hesitated enough where he read what was going on in my mind and he said oh uh, I understand it might be difficult for me to come to church there here but uh, um, look here's my number maybe you want to talk to your church board or something and uh, call me back. 
felt so horrible that he, when he left. And I, the whole time I thought, what in the world was I thinking? Why did I hesitate? Why did I just, you know, argue back and tell him to come no matter what? But I didn't. Sunday morning happens. The whole time I'm preaching, the whole time I'm worshiping, Willie Briscoe is just haunting me. I have got his number in my pocket and in his name. And I try to call him Sunday night. No answer. I went around uh, the next week kind of looking around at where maybe Willie would hang out and see if I could find out if anybody knew Willie Briscoe. And by the end of the week, somebody said, yeah, I think he lives over down this way. And so I went and I drove on Friday night over to that road. And it was, it was one of those roads. And, and you, back in those days in the South, there were communities, African-American communities, but they were also oftentimes not really seen. They were kind of hidden back in the woods. And this was one of those communities. And I asked about Willie Briscoe, and they said, oh, I think he lives over at that house over there. So I knocked on the door, and there was no answer. And I asked the neighbor, do you know Willie Briscoe? And he said, uh, yeah, him and his family packed up and left this week. They, they just couldn't make it here. And I just thought to myself, look what I missed. What would have happened if, if I would have been able to open my arms and said yes to Willie at that moment? Would his life have been different? Would my life have been different? And so I always keep Willie Briscoe and that name and that number in my pocket. I, I put it up on my wall because that moment changed the way I looked at who I was. It kind of told me the truth a little bit about who I was. It's not a part of my me I like, but that's one of the things we need to do, folks, when we look at racism, is see where we fall into it, where we give into it, where we, where we let it happen. And it's so easy for us to do. And so... Hate to say it, but that's part of my story. story to your daughters and your sons make them hear you make them hear you and tell them in our struggle we were not the only ones make them hear you make them hear you your sword can be a sermon or the power of the pen. Teach every child to raise their voice and then my siblings then. Will justice be demanded by ten million righteous kin? Make them hear you. Make them hear you. Some of you have seen the movie Boys in the Boat. Great movie. I hope you go see it, but I want to encourage you to read the book. 
Um, the book has so much more information in it. In, in The Boys in the Boat, uh, it's a group of Washington, uh, University of Washington rowers who won the gold medal in 1936 in the Berlin Olympics. And in the book, they talk about these boys going to Berlin and how Adolf Hitler and his crew kind of hid the Jews. They moved them out. They, they hid all the, the people they didn't want anybody to see. And they pretended, and, and pretended that they were this great, wonderful, amazing society. They wanted to put that out there for the whole world to see. And they did a really good job of it. A lot of Americans came home from the Berlin Olympics feeling like there's nothing wrong with Adolf Hitler. In fact, there's a, a, a letter to the editor in Seattle paper that talked about maybe Adolf Hitler would be good for us because of what that country looked like at that point because they were able to hide all their black spots or all their, their dark spots or all their, their places of pain and struggles and their racism, right? And their um, ethnic cleansing. I have to admit that there's a part of me that would like to do that too, right? That's what we do with our own lives. We, we like to tell the good stories, right? We like to tell the heroic stories, but sometimes we hide those other parts of who we are. I work with Fernell Miller, an African-American teacher here in the Woodenville area, and I, every week I, I do a, a circle of, of caring with people of color that I'm involved with. And one of the things Fernell teaches us as white people is that we get to hide in this world. Black people can't. You know, they're black. Um, they're, they're, they're just stuck out there. I mean, they, they stick out no matter what. But we white folks, we can choose to hide when we want to. And that's not a necessarily a good thing, you know. Um, and so one of the things I, I want us to think about is how can we stay present? How we, can we stay present to where racism is ha happening? And how can we, um, you know, tell our story in such a way that not only tells the good stuff, but also the tough stuff? Will talked about racism as a system, systematic it is. And we're a part of that system. Um, so a couple of things I, I want to encourage you to do as we work on racism this year. Our bishop ask the pastors to do this. Think of three people of color that you know. Maybe you don't know that many. Maybe two. Whatever. Three people of color. Would you put them on a piece of paper and try to reach out to them where they live, in their sandbox, where they're at? You know, consciously put that down. So I had to write three names and the bishop actually called me and asked me, now, who are these people? And so I had to explain, tell him uh, who these folks were. And, and I think it's been so interesting for me. I've got them on a sheet of paper. Every day I look at them, I pray for them. But every day I try to figure out how might I be able to reach out to them in a new way. So I want you to do that. See if you could write down three names of people you might reach out to this year and make new connections, people of color. The second thing I would like us to do as a church is could we figure out a way how to get out of the box of Woodenville occasionally? Uh, we love Woodenville. It's a protected place, right? It's a place of comfort. 
I think it was just listening to somebody who said they don't go down to Seattle uh, proper anymore because they're a little too, too worried about what's going on down there. But we need to get into uncomfortable places sometimes. So, could we think of a couple of occasions where we might get out of our box? Something just happened at our church this week that I thought was really cool. A family called us up to see if we could do their birthday party. One-year-old they had. And they came in, and they're from Turkey, right? They're, they're a Turkish couple. And so they're going to have this birthday party, and they want to use our church. And so we talked to them about it, what that would mean. Um, and I said, well, what's a, what's a Turkish uh, you know, birthday party like? <laughs> and they said, well, we do a lot of dancing. <laughs> and so then I just was going to kind of you know, just use that as, hey, they're coming to my sandbox. That's cool. That's awesome. And I said, is there any way... I could come see you at your house. So I, I got a chance to go there where they live. And uh, it was so fun to visit with them and, and get to know them a little bit. And it just encouraged me that, hey, we can do this thing, right? So we might get some baklava from that family as a, as a result. But that's what I want us to think about doing. Um, and, then the, and then the last thing I want you to do is, what are your stories? I told mine, Will told a little bit of his, but what are your stories? And what stories do you need up on your wall? What people do you need up on your wall to keep racism, fighting racism, and justice for all in our hearts this year? That will, those stories that will lure us into being better human beings and being a better church. I hope we can do that. And all the people said, amen. Amen.